0: What are the character qualities that you think of when you hear the word leader? Integrity, drive, vision, charisma, energy, focus, passion, loyalty. Those are all really good. But there's another word that, although less visible, may be exponentially more important. From the Ramsey Network, this is the Entree Leadership Podcast, where we help business leaders grow themselves, their teams, and their profits. I'm your host, Alex Judd, and that quality, it's humility. And today's guest, Adam Grant, is going to make the case for why this often overlooked trait is invaluable to your business. Adam is an organizational psychologist, professor at Wharton Business School, best-selling author, and host of the podcast Work Life. But the example of humility that typifies his findings, it didn't come from the classroom or from a consulting session. It came straight from the NBA. My favorite example is somebody I'd been observing
1: and rooting for and then studying for years, uh, who's become a friend, Shane Battier. I'm sure you know know Shane's backstory, but for, for anyone who doesn't, Shane grew up a star basketball player. He ended up going to Duke and winning a national championship. He was a lottery pick then in the NBA. And then when he got to the NBA, something happened. He discovered that all the players at that elite level uh, were more athletically talented than him. <laughs> so, you know, they were faster, they could jump higher. People made fun of Shane because he was slow and he couldn't dribble. And he saw the writing on the wall and, and realized that for the first time in his life, he was not only not the best player on the team, but he was in danger of, of maybe not even being able to add value to the team. And so, you know, Shane, I think, did what would very few people have the humility to do. He took an honest look in the mirror. He said, "Okay, what are my strengths? What are my limitations? And then, how do I learn to play in a way that, you know, that leverages those strengths and overcomes the limitations?" Mm. And one of the things that that he ended up doing was saying, "All right, look, you know, what it, what I can't do with my body, I can make up with my mind." So he started studying game statistics. Shane was like the, you know, one of the, I guess one of the early champions of the money ball movement in basketball. And so, you know, he would know when, when he had to guard a player exactly what spot on the court he wanted to avoid because they always hit their shots from that place. Yeah. He'd know, you know, where, where they were most inefficient or ineffective. And his job as a defender was, was to try to get them there. I think the other thing he did, which was really powerful, is he focused on intangibles that other players with big egos just did not have the humility to really concern themselves with. So he was the guy who would dive for the loose ball. He's the guy who'd do all sorts of uh, things on the court that weren't even measured mm. but were ultimately valuable. And Michael Lewis ended up writing an article about him calling him the no-stats all-star. That's uh, because Because you know, even, even though he wasn't a great scorer or rebounder or shot blocker, when he was on the court, his team was more likely to win.
0: That's pretty remarkable to call him an all-star because a lot of times we think of the all-star as the person that is in the center of attention and is getting all of the publicity because of their stats. And it sounds like what you're saying is the thing that stands out about Shane is the fact that he did almost the complete opposite of that.
1: Yeah, I think he did in a lot of ways. He went for the, you know, sort of all of the thankless jobs yeah. that exist on a basketball team, which which is kind of amazing. And you know, I, I don't think we'll ever know how indispensable he was, but mm. it is interesting to look back and say, okay, you know the the year that you put together the Dream team on the Miami Heat and you had LeBron James with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosch, they really struggled
2: yeah they in that couldn't first get it season. done
1: yeah, no, not at all. And you know that that tracks with with this evidence that I, I think is fascinating that basketball teams and soccer teams that have quote unquote too many stars." are actually less likely to win because, you know, everybody wants that center of attention. And, you know, it's it's hard to have a successful team when everybody wants to hog the ball. Mm. And I, th- I think it's amazing that then the year that, that Shane joined, the dynamics of that team really changed. And I think he had a huge effect
0: on that. And you said you know Shane personally. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I actually, uh, I got to know him probably now four or five years ago. I was hosting a people analytics conference at Wharton. It dawned on us that it would be great to learn from him, given that he'd taken data and actually used them on the court. So I reached out. It turned out we we shared a speaker's bureau. And he sent me an email the next day saying, hey, I'd be happy to come to your conference. So we did a nice uh, fireside chat on stage, and then uh, we've gotten to know each other. He, um, I actually, I, I didn't know if that would be the end of our interactions, but I got an email with, from him a couple months later saying, hey, I, I read your book, and I have a bunch of questions for you. Gosh, that, that's the most Shane Battier thing I've ever seen.
0: The guy is <laughs> yeah, always, like what, always what looking What NBA to learn. player is emailing an author saying, I read your book and I want to sit down with you to discuss it. Like you just don't picture that happening. That's um, okay. So, so what of. I want to know, it's so number one, it's encouraging to hear that you read about this guy, you heard about this guy, you were obviously a fan of this guy and simultaneously you then became his friend and the word that you keep using to describe him is Humility. So what do you mean when you use that word humility to describe Shane? I think humility
1: gets a bad rap in a lot of conversations because it sounds like you lack self-esteem or confidence and, you know, it feels like admitting weakness. Yeah. But if you actually go back to the, the root of the word, it, I guess it comes from Latin, and it translates to from the earth, which, you know, to me means humble people are grounded. They don't think... Little of themselves, they just want to have a realistic sense of themselves, and I think that's what Shane is about, right? He, it's not like he thought, you know, he he was incapable of playing basketball. Yeah. He he knew he was good enough to lead a national championship team in college and to make the NBA, but he had to he had to take a, a hard look in the mirror and say, okay, you know, what what are the limitations that are really going to hold me back, and then what can I do to to try to get better, and. I think one of the the things that's really interesting about that is, if you think about the opposite of humility, it's narcissism. Mm. And there's a a study that came out last year, which essentially showed that if you had more narcissists on an NBA team, your team was less successful. And the the, the way that the narcissism was measured is hilarious in this study. Um. You actually take a sample of the player's tweets, and then you code them for how self-centered and grandiose they are. And one of the tweets that scored high on narcissism was an NBA player who tweeted a picture of himself, and the caption was, "When I look in the mirror, what I see staring back at me is greatness."
0: Oh my word! Oh,
2: so
1: gosh, I, I mean, there there are uh, there are other parts of the world where you would expect people to say things like that, but I thought the results were really interesting that. If you had more narcissists on your team, you actually had less efficient passing dynamics. So there was less team coordination, uh, fewer assists, for example, and that actually hurt team performance over time. And the the way it played out was most teams got better over time through the season as they practiced together. Teams with a bunch of narcissists didn't. They basically stagnated. That was especially true if you had a narcissist in a pivotal role like point guard, who's sort of responsible for, for helping the team gel together. So I looked at Shane and thought, he's just the opposite of that.
0: What's so interesting, too, I've read some of your work on this and listened to some of your work on this as well, is that just because they are tweeting something as ridiculous as that doesn't mean necessarily that they are a poor individual performer, though. It just sounds like that they are a poor collaborator. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a fair summary. I think that you know, very often narcissists are are good at maximizing their own individual performance, right? Because they want to be great. And they frequently lose sight of what's the impact of my behavior on the people around me. So, one of the ways you can see Shane really contrasting with that is he wasn't just mastering statistics for his own benefit. He also used them to elevate his teammates. One of my favorite stories that, that he shared is when he was teaming up with LeBron, he had this little dilemma of how do you tell the best player in the world— that his game isn't perfect and and could get better. Yeah, and you know he, de- he definitely didn't want to come in and say, you know, LeBron, I've been studying all the game stats, and you know, let me let me tell you, you're playing the game wrong. <laughs> I don't think that's going to go so well. No, but he he said, look, you know, LeBron loves to learn. He's always trying to get better, and so I just need to needed to find a way to you know to capture what what I'd seen in the data in a way that would resonate with him. And so he said one day before a big game against Kevin Durant. LeBron was a little bit, yeah. I don't know if he was nervous, but he was putting a lot of time into preparing how to defend him. And Shane said, "Hey, you know, hey LeBron, why don't you uh, why don't you make him shoot over his uh, his left shoulder?" And LeBron's like, "All right, I'll give it a try." And Shane was thrilled because LeBron did it, and uh, and he missed. And you know, Shane didn't have the heart to say. You know, the law of small numbers. You know, maybe, maybe this, uh, this, this wouldn't have been effective the next time you tried it, but. That's right. <laughs> because it was effective, LeBron went back to him and said, you know, hey, Shane's nickname was, was Batman, uh, from Batier, and he said, hey, Batman, what else you got? And that opened the door for, for Shane to be you know, sharing his knowledge and, and teaching what, what he'd learned to the rest of the team. And you know, I think when, when you can get LeBron to want to learn from game stats, that becomes contagious pretty quickly. And I think that's one of the, the things that's most powerful about the kind of humility we see in, in a player
0: like Shane Battier is it does tend to be contagious. Mm, I love that story, too, because it kind of connects humility to effectiveness in a pretty clear way. I would like to know just in terms of what you've observed with Shane and what you've observed in the NBA, have you seen areas where those trends and patterns transcend the NBA and can be applied to the marketplace?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I didn't get first interested in this topic as a basketball fan, although I am a basketball (laughs) fan. I got interested in it because I was sick of coaching and advising founders and leaders who were extremely narcissistic. Mm. And it was easy to see up close the harm that they did. But when I really felt confident that narcissism was a problem was when I started reading the research on the effects of of having a narcissistic CEO. So one of my all-time favorite studies, a study by Chatterjee and Hambrick, first of all, they measure CEO narcissism by looking at cues that you could pick up without even working in the company or knowing the CEO. So they start by asking Wall Street analysts to rate CEOs based on observing them and interacting with them in earnings calls on you know how selfish, egotistical, and narcissistic each CEO is. And then they find that there are three different clues they correlate with uh, with those ratings. The first one is, if you look at the words that the CEOs use, the narcissistic CEOs are much more likely to use I and me, but not Mm -hmm. across the board, just when talking about the company's success. You know, the less narcissistic CEOs are much more likely to use us and we. Hmm. Uh, The second clue is in the compensation, which is if you look at the average CEO, This study was done in the computer hardware and software industry. The average CEO in the study made about two to two and a half times the total annual compensation of their number two executive. The average narcissistic CEO made seven times the annual comp of that second highest paid exec. So they're literally taking more money. And then my favorite one was the third clue, which is if you look at the annual reports that the companies put out, the narcissistic CEOs were more likely to have a giant photo of their own faces, which, you know, sent a, a pretty clear signal. I'm the most important person in this company. It's all about me and when you, you aggregate those three factors, when you measure the i's and me's, the relative compensation, and the size of the CEO's photograph, those combined actually correlated 0. 0.86 with the Wall Street analyst ratings, which is a whopping correlation you know, in, in the social sciences where it can only range from minus one to plus one. So- That is outrageous. You look at that and
0: you say, wow, we can see this. Yeah, no kidding. It doesn't work. It doesn't work to operate that way. Uh, you said that you personally hated being around narcissistic CEOs and seeing what they were doing to their companies. What were the results that you were seeing that make you use that word hate, Adam? Oh, I mean, the we can make a long list. So
1: overconfidence was a huge problem. Unethical behavior, you know, just even if the behavior wasn't outside the lines of of what you might consider a moral code, just being demeaning and degrading to other people, and you know that was that was really backed up in the data so if you look at those narcissistic CEOs their companies actually had more fluctuating and volatile performance uh, if you track their financial returns and total shareholder returns or return on assets because the you know the narcissists were convinced that they had all the answers and so they would basically wind up and swing for the fences and you know occasionally those risks would pay off but for the most part they were destroying their companies and a lot of the evidence following that, there's a study showing that if you're a bank after the 2008 financial crisis, if a narcissist is at the helm, you actually recover more slowly in your financial performance. There's evidence that, that narcissists are more tolerant of unethical behavior from their subordinates and sometimes even encourage it. And so, you know, that just tracked with what I'd seen in so many CEOs where, you know, a CEO would walk into a company and, and say, good morning and almost expect people to come back and say,
0: great point. I agree with you all the time. I agree with you no matter what. Yeah, and we can all think of examples, I think, because we see them on the news a lot of times whenever they're failing. So contrast those observations with the outrageously humble leaders that you've witnessed and seen and worked with. What are the big difference makers there?
1: When I think about the most impressive humble leaders, there are a few things that come to mind. The first one is that they are not afraid to hide their flaws and limitations. One of my favorite examples of that is a marketing leader named Carolyn Everson. Mm. So Carolyn one day got a performance review from her boss and said, you know what? I never really thought of doing this before, but I might as well, I might as well let other people know, you know where I'm trying to improve. And so she took her performance review and she shared it with her team. And said, look, here's what I'm working on. You know, if, if you have further suggestions, if, if you see blind spots for me, let me know. And that's unusual. But even more unusual is there are over 2,000 people who work
0: under her. Wow. And so she, she basically open sourced her performance reviews. Okay. And so she was sharing it not just with her peers. She was sharing it with her direct reports that report to her. And all the way down below them. And when you say performance review too, I feel like sometimes people share their performance review whenever it's a glowing review, right? That it's like, oh, I got fives on everything. You should see this. But you're saying yes. she was sharing her limitations and weaknesses.
1: Yeah, she, she just said, look, you know, here's my review. It, it tells you what I'm doing well and what I need to improve on. And I want, I want all of you to know what I'm working on so that you can help me improve. What an amazing way to open the, the feedback channel. Yeah. And say, look, there's you know, the, you shouldn't be afraid of criticizing me, or letting me know when you see something I'm doing that's not effective. And by the way, it makes it a lot easier than when you see her do something that you think is ineffective. She's already aware of it if it's in the performance review, and so you don't have to be afraid that you're you know you're calling her out on something that she's oblivious to. But then also, if you see something that's not in the performance review, it reinforces how important it is for you to raise it because it's it's clear that it's not on her radar right now. So. That, to me, was, was a first step. And we could talk about some others if you want.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you said awareness of limitations. What was something else that stood out about the really humble leaders?
1: So I think a second thing you see in extremely humble leaders is they actually recognize that their own strengths can become weaknesses. One of the things I, I've seen with narcissists is they tend to believe that when they're good at something, the more they use that strength, the better. Right so let's say you're a narcissist and you've been told you're great at public speaking. All of a sudden every meeting turns into, you know, an inspiring speech. And pretty soon you've silenced everybody on your team and you've closed the door to your own learning. So what humble leaders would often do is say, "Look, I've gotten I've gotten feedback that I'm I'm, you know, sometimes seen as charismatic, But I don't want that to be a crutch. Mm. And so when I come into a meeting, I'm going to frame a discussion or a dialogue, and I'm actually then going to shut up and speak last. And that will make sure that I get everybody else's opinions and ideas on the table before I I bias them and, and put them in a situation where they want to conform to what's sometimes called the hippo effect, where
0: the highest paid person's opinion dominates. It sounds like so much of what you're talking about is directly related to self-awareness. And I think that there's this point with self-awareness and certainly with humility that the minute I call myself self-aware or the minute I call myself really humble, I'm probably not very humble. And at the same point, we want to be able to self-evaluate or at least to evaluate how we're doing in these arenas. So how would you suggest leaders go about doing that, Adam?
1: Well… I think the, the starting point for me actually really comes out of uh, the time I've spent inside Bridgewater, mm. the hedge fund that, that Ray Dalio has built. Yeah. And you know, there's some practices at Bridgewater that I would not necessarily recommend to most organizations, <laughs> but they've been the most successful firm in the history of their industry. And I think one of the ways they've done it is they believe, look, if you want to beat the market, you have to think differently from everyone else. And if you want to think differently, then you can't have a giant ego. You actually have to be open to being challenged and admitting when you're wrong. And one of the ways they make that real is in their performance reviews, they actually evaluate people on whether they're disagreeing with those above them and criticizing their superiors. Hmm. So you could get fired, Alex, from Bridgewater if you'd
0: never criticized your boss's boss, Oh my uh, which word. is kind of remarkable. And I would love to see more of that. Is that an exaggeration or can that actually happen?
1: People have actually been told that they're not a good fit for the company because they're not doing enough to build a culture where there's radical transparency and an idea meritocracy. They don't believe a company should be run like a democracy, right? Uh, They actually want the best ideas to win. And if you're 25, there's actually there's an incredible example from Bridgewater of Jim Comey, uh, the now famous Jim Comey. I uh, was actually a senior executive there. Wow! And there was at one point a 25-year-old guy, I think fresh out of law school, who came in and basically said, you don't even know what you're talking about, and criticized a bunch of Comey's reasoning. And he was promoted for that. And people who haven't been willing to, it's called, uh, and sometimes they call it sticking your hand in the fan, people who are afraid <laughs> to do that are told that they're not adding value there.
0: Man, sticking your hand into the fan, that is a great name for it because that's probably a little bit of what it feels like. It's like, I'm going to go in and give this feedback and how it's going to be received, I don't know. But it sounds like what you're saying is the leader or the organization needs to be open to poor feedback from every level of the org chart if they're going to be humble and then stay humble.
1: I think that's key. And I think, you know, it's one thing to say you're open, it's another thing to demonstrate it. Yeah. So one of one of the things I've I've seen a lot of leaders do is, is say, "Look, you know, I, I really do want to improve. I want to get better. Let me ask for feedback." But I I recently finished an experiment in a couple of companies with a, a doctoral student, Constantinos Kudiferis, and we said, "Look, asking for feedback is not enough, because when you make the request, people don't know how you're going to react. Mm. Are you going to listen, or are you going to bite their heads off and get really defensive?" So we tested whether it would help to go an extra step. And we randomly assigned uh, dozens and dozens of managers, some of them to just ask for feedback, others to say, here's a time when I've been criticized in the past, and here's how I benefited from it. And that second group, over the next year, their teams actually experienced more psychological safety. So they felt like they could take a risk in challenging, criticizing, speaking up. Whereas the, the leaders who asked for feedback but didn't kind of prove that they'd been willing to listen to it in the past, they got a temporary boost in the psychological safety in their team, and then it it fell right back to baseline.
0: Wow. So if they just give almost like proof text for this can work, I want you to be critical, then it's more likely to actually occur in the future. That's pretty powerful. I'd like to know if we're talking to a plumbing company with 20 team members, I don't think the business owner is going to walk into that company and say, okay, I have established an idea meritocracy now, right? Like (laughs) I don't know that that's going to happen. So what would the next action item be for that business owner that's saying, I want to make sure that I'm staying grounded and I'm staying humble, and I want to establish an organization where that occurs?
1: I think one of the the most effective things you can do is you can invite people to criticize you in public Mm -hmm. and then demonstrate in real time that you're willing to take it. There's an interesting example of this from a colleague of mine, Tom Garrity. He was running a company that that started growing, and when they were about 100 people, he noticed that people weren't giving him the honest, unfiltered feedback that they used to. And, you know, he felt like there, all of a sudden there was too much power distance in the organization, especially with the people who didn't know him when he was a peer. You know, they just kind of saw him as, as the CEO. And so Tom actually called, uh, he called a meeting. It was an all-hands meeting. So 100 people show up. Wow. And he says, you know, I, I don't think we're getting enough criticism on the table. I feel like I need to find out how I can improve in order to be effective. And he said, we're going to stay here until everybody tells me what they think I can do better. And. You know, a lot of people were were hesitant at first, not not knowing how it would go. but he had he had prepared a few of his colleagues beforehand and, and said, "Look, you know, take the gloves off. I really want to know what you think, And I'm going to try to model the way I would most love to react to criticism on my best day." And he said it was um it was kind of a watershed moment in his culture. You know, that after seeing the way that he was willing to listen, people are not only, you know, more likely to confront him with with areas for improvement, but they also sought out that kind of feedback from one another. And, you know, I don't know that everyone wants to go to that extreme, right, and say, all right, let me stand up in front of a firing squad. That's right. But I think, you know, even doing that in small groups just to to demonstrate that you're willing to listen and learn, to me, is a, a powerful step.
0: Well, and that you're a human being, because everyone else knows you're a human being. It's just, do you know you're a human being that everyone's looking for? I was having a conversation with a business owner. It was actually yesterday and she was in a really tough position. She has made over the past 90 days or so, she has made some really tough changes to compensation structures and some certain policies in the business that have been standing for a long time, but it was necessary for the sustainability and forward motion of the business that she had to, make these changes because they were unsustainable. And we don't need to talk about this practice because I don't know that I necessarily agree with this practice. She had a suggestion box. And in the suggestion box, she was going through all the comments left anonymously by employees. And one of the employees, I guess in the midst of all this change, just kind of lashed out and wrote, the ship is sinking in all caps. Whoa. And she's sitting there, and every Monday at her staff meeting, she addresses the suggestions in the suggestion box. She came to this coaching call, and she was like, I don't know what to do. I had to make these changes, and I hate that it affected their compensation, and I gave them warning. And at the same time, I've got to lay down the line and be like, I hear your feedback, but but this is what we have to do for the business. And at the same time, I don't want to be an arrogant snob. What do I do? I'm going to throw that question to you, Adam. What does she do?
1: Uh, Let's start, Alex, by saying there are not any easy answers to a situation like this. And there's a reason I study these dynamics as opposed to actually having a leadership role. So you should take (laughs) everything I say with a few grains of salt. But if she came to me with that dilemma, my starting point would be to think about what does the evidence tell us? You know, I think a, a lot of leaders are focused on learning from experience and for me, as an organizational psychologist, I just think about evidence as being able to learn from lots of people's experiences at the, at one time, and and saying, okay, you know, what what works for most of the people most of the time in a situation like this. And one of the the themes in the evidence that I've been gathering and and also reviewing is sometimes people want to have a say, even if they don't get their way, mm. right? So when you, when you speak up with you know with an idea or you submit to a suggestion box. You don't always expect that exactly what you recommend is going to be implemented. You just want to know that that you've been heard, right? That, That people took your ideas seriously and took them into consideration. I guess I'd say to her, look, you know, if you can sit down with your team and say, here's what I heard in the feedback. Here's the piece of it that I'm trying to act on. Here's the challenge of putting the rest of it into practice, you know, people respect that, right? They understand that we have to make difficult decisions and that not everybody can be, you know, can be happy in every situation. And from the standpoint of my experience, Alex, I face a version of this in the classroom when I'm teaching my students at Wharton. So I do feedback forums about a month into the semester. And, you know, I'll have usually about 100 different suggestions for how to improve the class. And some of it is, there are times when it's just annoying. <laughs> because I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go through the forums and, you know, there are 30 students who have written lecture less and then there are 27 who have written lecture more.
0: Yeah. Like, Well, okay, you're all going to be miserable. What am I supposed to do with that? Yeah, that's right. And I think the leader is in the same position a lot of times where it's like, okay, well, I've got customers that are asking me to do one thing and then leaders yep. that are asking me to do another and a team that is asking me to do other things and they all contradict each other. So how do I fix that mess?
1: Yeah, so I don't know that you do, but one of the things you can do is you can make those contradictions more transparent to your stakeholders so that they understand that this is not as clear-cut as it seems just from their perspective, right? So what I like to do, and I guess this is my own version of the firing squad, is I take all the feedback verbatim and I send it out to the students after class. And then I come in the next class and I say, okay, I've reviewed all your feedback. I've actually done an analysis of the most common themes, and it seems like there are four problems that, that you all want me to solve. There are usually four or five you know, major issues that, that come up over and over again. And then I'll put up on the slides, okay, you know, a bunch of people want the class to be more educational and a bunch of people want the class to be more interactive. And here are the conflicting suggestions that I've gotten <laughs> on how to do that. And so if you all have ways of reconciling this, please let me know. I'm happy to act on that. Otherwise, I'm going to try to maintain the same balance I have right now, given that, you know, we have a divide in the room. But here's what I'm going to do with some of the other suggestions that I think are more actionable. And I have never, after having that discussion, had a student push back and say, well, no, you have to do what I said, right? They they realize they're just one voice in the room and that I care about representing all the voices, not just
0: one. Man, that's a powerful approach because – I mean, it's a kind of cliche quote now, but leadership is lonely all the time. And I think one of the things that I've observed about what creates that reality that leaders often experience as it being lonely is that they are the only one that bears the weight of all of those contradictions. And they are having to live with those and try and sort them out on their own. And it sounds like what you're saying is that the most humble approach is just to say, hey, There's all these contradictions and it kind of sucks, and I don't know what to do with this and just kind of share the mess.
1: Yeah. And I don't think that that everyone should be fully transparent all the
0: time. Right. Okay. So, can you go into that some? Because it's like, how do you walk that line of, because you don't just want to be a walking dumpster fire everywhere you go. And at the same time, you want to be authentic and real. So, what do you do with that, Adam? Yeah. I think there's such a thing as confident humility,
1: right? Mm. Which is to say, okay, you know, this is a complicated problem. But here's why I believe that the, you know, the solution that I've identified is in the best interest of the organization as a whole. And the hope is that people respect that. I think there's a series of questions worth asking. One of my favorite organizational psychologists uh, is named Victor Vroom, mm. uh, and his, his license plate on his car actually says Vroom, which
0: is amazing. <laughs> of course it does. Why? So is that humble or is that narcissist given that it's his last name? How does that work? I, I, I hope I hope it's neither. Uh, I hope it's it's just fun. That's a good answer. I like fun. That's good.
1: Yeah. So Victor was sort of one of the founding fathers of our field, and he spent most of his career studying how leaders make decisions. And he saw a systematic mistake over and over again, which is leaders would settle on a style and they would stick to it. Mm. So, you know, you might be empowering. I might be more directive. And that's basically how we each choose to operate. And what what Victor found was that there wasn't one style that was effective in all the different situations that leaders would face. Rather, the only style that really was consistently effective was a style of being adaptable, which meant my style is I have different styles depending on what the the needs of the problem are. And he studied this on the spectrum of, you know, when should you decide versus when should you delegate? And he found that there there were a series of questions that leaders should ask themselves but I like three in particular from his list. The first one was was to ask, how much unique information do I have or how much expertise do I have relevant to making this decision? And the more expertise you had, the more appropriate it was to just decide as opposed to get the whole team involved. The second question was, how much knowledge do other people have that I'm missing? You know, that's a fundamental humility question. So that, you know, the more you realize other people know things that you don't know, the more you need to start including and involving them. And then the third question that I've found extremely helpful was to ask, how important is buy-in from my team on this decision? And if the decision could go fine without people getting behind it, it's probably okay to just go forward with it. If you need people's real commitment, and especially if they're already a little bit skeptical then, you know, you want to involve them even if you think you already know the answer because we all know that people are more likely to commit to a decision when they've they've had a voice in it. So, you know, I think of that as, uh, as a great way to think about the balance of confidence and humility to say, look, you know what? There are times when I'm going to decide and I hope that you'll trust that I'm doing that with the best information available, with the best interests of the group to serve our mission. And there are times when I'm not going to know the answer and you all are going to have more expertise than I do I'm going to be as receptive as possible to that.
2: Here's a math refresher. There are only 24 hours in a day, so you and your team need to streamline time-consuming tasks to focus on the activities that make
3: Visit trainual.com entree today for a demo and get 15% off your first year with code ENTRE15. That's 15% off at T-R-A-I-N-U-A-L entree with code E-N-T-R-E-1-5.
0: I think one of the greatest challenges, but also probably opportunities facing business owners and their teams right now is that idea of remote work. Because I think we're all recognizing that when you have a remote team, whether by choice or by requirement, it can be hard for your team to stay connected to the culture of your business. And I'll tell you, our friends at Belay know about this better than just about anyone because they've worked 100% remote with over a 1,000 team members for years. And they recently compiled their best practices and tips in a free resource called 13 Ways to Build a High-Performing Remote Team. This resource is going to help keep your team connected to the mission, connect to the values, make sure they're staying communicating and staying healthy, just as if you were sharing the same four walls. So whether this is just a season of remote work or this is something that you want to do moving forward, go ahead and get this resource by texting the word BELAY to 31996. Again, that's the word BELAY, spelled B-E-L-A-Y, to 31996. I can't help but think our founder and CEO here is Dave Ramsey, and I've worked here for four years now. We have a staff meeting every Monday where him and other leaders from the organization address all 900 team members. And it's remarkable over the course of the many seasons that I've been here now in four years – I've seen different versions of Dave Ramsey, his values and his mission and his purpose and his personality stay the same. But the way he handles certain situations and adversity and even opportunity, it changes and shifts and the tone shifts. And it sounds like he's doing what you're talking about. He's adjusting the way he deals with different situations situationally. How do you develop that skill? Because that seems like a next echelon of leadership that a lot of people never think about because we're so absorbed with our quote unquote leadership style. That's a great question, Alex. I'm curious. you've had a chance to watch Dave. What would you say? Oh man, you're putting me on the spot talking about my CEO uh, Adam. <laughs> um, hey, you started it. Yeah, that's right. yeah, my fault. I, I take the blame. I think one of the things that I've noticed about him and in the conversations that I've had with him too, I've noticed this, he is remarkably introspective and remarkably thoughtful. And I think that he takes the time in the moment, especially whenever the decisions are high stakes decisions and the communication to the team is high stakes communication. He takes the time in the moment to honestly assess, okay, what is needed from me at this time for the team to succeed as a whole. And so maybe I guess I would say that his mindset and his posture is not about his style and it's more about his contribution to the team.
1: Yeah, I love that. So I think that goes, I'll, I'll let you off the hook here. but right.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I don't have any data to support that, Adam, so hopefully you do.
1: It's, <laughs> it's all good. No, I mean, it, it goes to the first thing that I was thinking about, which is one of the places where, where I get to try to, to test out this idea is in public speaking. Mm. End up giving a lot of keynote speeches on a lot of different stages. And as somebody who started out terrified of public speaking and very, very bad at it, it's been sort of a, a lifelong journey to try to figure out how can I become, you know, more compelling, more interesting, more thoughtful. And so I made it a practice when I started going on stage regularly that after every talk I gave, I was going to ask as many people as, as I could track down afterward, what's the one thing I could do better? Mm. And it's such a simple question to ask because, you know, you're you're not asking somebody for a comprehensive review, you know, you're not asking them to put a lot of work or you know or real thought into answering. You're just saying, "Give me, give me one tip." And I had a funny experience a couple of weeks ago. I uh, I flew across the country to give a talk at a company where the the new CEO spoke right before me. And afterwards, she came up and and she was you know overly, I would say overly kind, uh, mm-hmm. and you know gave me a bunch of compliments. And I said, "Okay, you know that's nice. I'll repeat the things that I just did the next time I, I'm asked to give a similar talk." But I'd much rather learn, you know, from, from how I can get better. And so what's the one thing I can improve on? And she said, well, I don't, I don't really have anything. I was, I was really thrilled with it. And, you know, the, I think the easy way out is just to just just take the compliment. And that's the end of the conversation. Yeah, no kidding. I want to keep getting better. And I know she's someone I can learn from. And I said, come on. I thought you were more critical than that. You're not a Pollyanna. There must be some, I mean, you watched me for 45 minutes. There must be at least one thing that you thought I could do better. And she said, well, I'd have to think about it. I was just, you know, I was really absorbed in the talk. And finally I said, all right, I've got to do something to, you know, to to get her to really tell me what she thought. And so I actually gave her a piece of constructive criticism on her talk and said, you know, the, the thing I saw in your speech was, I felt like you shied away from telling your personal story a little bit. Mm. And by the way, this is a tendency I've seen over and over again in women as opposed to men. Mm. You know, not surprisingly, empirically, men tend to score a little bit higher in narcissism and women a little bit higher in humility (laughs) when you look at how this plays out in the population. And I said, look, as you know, as a leader, people want to know who you are and why you care. You shouldn't be afraid of you know of sharing that. And after that, she gave me a suggestion. And I guess the lesson for me is, you know, again, asking is a first step. People won't always answer. And sometimes you actually have to create the norms that you want the interaction to follow.
0: Mm. That's really powerful for the business owner because I think so often the people that they work with every day, the path of least resistance is to compliment you. And so they are surrounded by compliments and it's not necessarily their fault. It's just kind of human nature. Why would I step into unnecessary conflict? So it sounds like the correct approach is is what you did with that woman is I'm going to press. I am going to make it my goal to get one sliver of criticism out of you because I know it's the...
1: It was, I mean, it, was, it was actually a, a fun tug of war because for a while, you know, it, was, it was clear that she had decided she was just really happy with the talk and she didn't want to criticize it. And at some point, I, I think I said to her, I think my, my exact words were, I promise I'm more stubborn than you are. I promise. <laughs> you, can, you can test me. I'm, I'm, willing, I'm willing to play that game. I'm sure your time is valuable and you have other things you'd rather be doing. So just give me something here.
0: I want to jump into humility in the workplace and how you create a team that values humility like what we're talking about. But before we get there, I'd like to just – one more question on humility and leadership. A couple of years ago, we had Alan Mulally speak at one of our summit events. He's the former CEO of Ford. Yep. And I was kind of wondering if he was going to be a good fit for our audience, because our audience is business owners of two to 200 team members. That's our core audience. We have people on both ends of that spectrum. And this guy is a multi-billion dollar CEO. And I just thought to myself, is he going to be relatable? And he got on stage and i I kid you not, it was one of the most impressive displays of relatability and humility I've ever seen. And everyone left the room that day and people were talking about him all week. He was the highlight. And it wasn't because he was extremely impressive. It was just because he was a normal guy and he was relatable, but he had done all these amazing things. And it changed, Adam, it changed the feeling of the room. This guy's humility just – I mean he reeked of it, and everyone left that room smiling that day. And I've spent so much time trying to understand what happened there because I know that that has to be at the crux of what has made him one of the most effective leaders of modern America turnaround history. And I still don't know exactly what it was. So do you have any theories on what everyone was feeling in that room? So, I want to know more about what he said and did that conveyed that impression. So, you know,
1: I put on my social sciences hat. I walk into that room. What's the sentence or, you know, what's, what's even the nonverbal that you first pick up that leads you to say, huh, this is, this is a real regular human being.
0: Oh, man. I think the first thing that stands out were his clothes. <laughs> it was like he was, well-dressed, but it wasn't like super flashy by any means, right? His pants were pleated and, and just nice button down shirt, right? He dressed a lot like my dad would dress and that's fine, right? But he's on this big stage with 5,000 people, right? And he walks out and and he gives the host, he doesn't shake the host's hand. He just gives the host a huge bear hug that brought him out. And then he comes out and the first thing that I notice, I and this maybe says more about me than it does about him, I care a lot about really effective, concise Communication. And the first thing that I noticed was he wasn't the world's most polished communicator. Right? He had some ums and some uhs, and it was like he was kind of maybe maybe rambling a little bit about his story, but his story was impressive. And then he even said, he said, I just want to let y'all know that everything I know is on one slide. And it was essentially his operating values and principles that he used to lead Boeing and then turn around Ford. And he said, it's all on one slide. And then he put up the slide. He said, you think I'm joking. This is the slide. And he put it up and the room was just smiling the whole time. So does that shed a little bit of light? That, I mean, that was my experience. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think you actually just answered your own question in a very <laughs> compelling way. So the first thing you pointed out is uh, that he just exuded informality. The way he dressed, it it made it clear that he, at a basic level, he didn't. Maybe he took his work seriously, but he didn't take himself too seriously. Mm. I think that's huge. I think in the you know in the realm of not being too polished, there's a classic experiment in psychology where essentially you're, you're listening to an audio recording of of somebody answering a bunch of trivia questions. So it's like a Jeopardy game, and in the middle of the recording the guy stumbles and uh, he spills coffee all over himself and you can hear a dish <laughs> crashing and he just kind of sounds like he's a little bit clumsy. And it turns out that if he's bad at trivia, uh, so he comes across as incompetent, that moment that what's called a pratfall in, in that work, it basically makes you like him even less. <laughs> like, okay, the, the guy didn't know anything and he showed up for this this trivia contest unprepared and then he spilled coffee over himself. <laughs> what an
0: idiot. Uh, you so know, if not, you're clumsy and incompetent, that's a horrible combination. Don't be deadly clumsy combination. And com-
1: <laughs> uh, it just it just confirmed all your negative views of him. But if he had aced the trivia questions, when he spilled the coffee on himself, people liked him more. That was basically this guy who seemed extremely impressive and larger than life, now bringing himself down to your level, and that was a humanizing moment. And it sounds like that you got from Alan Mulally something very similar, which is. He didn't try to give a perfect speech. He didn't try to tell you he had all the answers. He tried to, to share what he'd learned, knowing that that knowledge is just like all knowledge, limited and incomplete.
0: Mm. And there was no aura about him that he wanted to impress us. He was just there to connect with the audience. That's a huge deal. That's powerful. Thank you. That's helpful for me because I've spent so much – I mean, that was years ago, and it made such an effect on me, but I haven't and, – and it did on the people in the room as well. But I haven't actually looked back and say, why did that occur? And I think a lot of what you just said in that study kind of explains that, Adam. That's It also – the other thing that, that jumps to mind is
1: it seems like when you when you said that he wasn't trying to impress anyone, I think there are so many communicators. And I see this with entrepreneurs and with leaders on a daily basis at this point. They get on a stage or they stand up in a meeting and their goal is to look smart. Hmm. And I think the thing that I've noticed about humble leaders is they're more interested in making other people feel smart. Hmm. I get a little bit of that sense from the everything I know is on one slide. And then, you know, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i give you access to that in case you can use it. And I'm going to tell you a story. But it's up to you to figure out what you could take away from my experiences. I think that's a great way of engaging the audience and giving them a chance to to develop their own conclusions, right? To to kind of be the, I guess, <laughs> to be in the position of, of generating insights as opposed to just consuming them.
0: That brings to mind another moment from that talk. He did Q&A, which also is another super kind of humble thing to do is to do Q&A. And it was just running around the mics in a room of 5,000 people or whatever. And it's just like, ask me whatever you want, right? Everything I know is on one slide. And I'll never forget, there was a woman that stood up and asked him the question. She said, you're so laid back. You just seem so relaxed about everything. How do you deal with stress? And he sat there, and he legitimately thought about it. He paused, and then he kind of looked at the ground, and then he just looked back at her, and he said, I don't do stress. And what was crazy is it wasn't like this, I hustle, and I grind, and I just get through it. It was it was authentic and it was real. Do you think that in any way, like the ability to not experience stress, connects to his humility?
1: I, yeah, I, I wonder which is which is potentially the cause and which might be the effect. Yeah, I do know there's there's a lot of evidence that stress often happens when we're in a, a self absorbed state, mm-hmm. right? We we kind of we turn inward, we focus on our own anxiety. And when we focus on other people, we're much less likely to feel that. It seems, you know, one of the other things you're describing about Alan that that I've seen in other humble leaders is it seems like he didn't think he was more important than anybody else. Hmm. I mean, yeah, he had this big title and impressive set of accomplishments, but as a human being, he didn't think he had more value than, than anyone else in the room. And I got a chance to see that uh, a couple months ago, actually, when I hosted Bob Iger, the, the Disney CEO, for an event. And Bob did something that I had never seen anybody on stage do before or since. We were waiting backstage to be introduced and come on. And he walked up and he introduced himself person by person to every single person backstage. He said, hi, I'm Bob, and then shook their hands. And that small moment of just showing that he cared about acknowledging other people. Of course, you could say, well, it's a really humble move, but it actually gave him more power. Yeah. Because people felt like they mattered in his eyes.
0: Man, and that's the the CEO of Disney. I, I mean, it's like if anyone doesn't need to do that, he's the guy, right? Because he is he could probably make a phone call that could make a lot of money in that moment, but he took the time to do it and I think people recognize that. And I think that's a lot of times what leaders fall susceptible to is they say, oh, Bob Iger needs to do that, but I don't need to do that. And it's like if you're in a leadership role, people are watching you and it's those small things a lot of times that make a way larger difference than the big things.
1: Agreed. And the thing that that happens over and over again is if you didn't make those moves, you know, I think people wouldn't – they wouldn't expect anything different. I think the problem you face as a leader is people have very high expectations of you. And it's extremely hard to exceed them, right? You're often struggling just to live up to them. And so those moments are a chance for him to defy expectations mm-hmm. and surprise people in a way that they're going to remember that, that really says something about his character. And of course, you know, it, it felt very clearly like he wasn't doing it with a goal or with an agenda. He did it because that's how he treats other human beings when he interacts with them.
0: Okay, so we've talked a little bit about humility and leadership. How do you then shift your perspective to creating an environment where humility is a value within a team? What are the actions that a leader can take to craft a culture around this virtue?
1: (laughs) The the standard answer to this question in tech is you've got to celebrate
0: failure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For the record, I kind of hate that phrase. Why would we celebrate failure?
1: Why would we do that? (laughs) I don't know about you, Alex, but I've never wanted to throw a party after any kind of failure I've experienced. Yeah,
0: no. It seems to me like most people that use the phrase celebrate failure have never actually failed.
1: Either that or they've achieved so much success that failure is a blip. Yes, that's right. It just has no impact on them (laughs) anymore. So. I do think there's, uh, there, there's something there that's just being expressed the wrong way. Yeah. I don't think we need to celebrate failure. I do think we need to normalize failure mm. and say, look, you know, part of the way that, that you build humility in a team is you make it easy for people to learn from their mistakes. If they think mistakes are huge problems, if they know they're going to be punished severely anytime they screw up, then what do they do? They hide their mistakes. And then they don't learn from them but no one else learns from them either because they've been covered up. Mm. There's evidence on this from um, from hospitals, for example, that if you create a culture that lacks psychological safety, where people are afraid of taking risks and, and trying new things and, and making errors, that those teams actually end up making more errors because of the loss of learning. Whereas if you build psychological safety, people freely admit what went wrong, and then they and everyone else in their team are in a better position to try to learn from it. And so, you know, to me, that's a first step is to just say, look, you know, if we never fail, we're not aiming high enough. If we never fail, we're not trying enough new ideas. We're not taking enough risks. And so, you know, it's going to be disappointing if we fall short of our goals. Of course, we're not excited to fail. But when it happens, let's let's talk about what we can learn from it. There's a great example of this actually from Etsy, Hmm. where when engineers make a mistake, they actually send an email to the entire company uh, explaining what went wrong and what they learned from it. And they describe it at Etsy as uh, it's kind of like putting a slippery when wet sign on a floor so that no one else get, will slip and fall. Look, you know, if somebody makes an error in, in coding or, you know, or in building a website or anything like that, uh, we, we want to put that sign up so that nobody else slips and falls in that same place in that same way.
0: I think that's a powerful principle, establishing the culture of we learn from our mistakes and then also from a cultural perspective. One of the things that we talk about all the time around here is reward what you want repeated. And as I was thinking about what you were saying earlier with regard to kind of the dichotomy between Shane and LeBron, it seems like so often when we use that phrase, reward what you want repeated, the thing we reward is LeBron James. And sometimes it's LeBron James with a really bad attitude that isn't humble at all that we're rewarding, but it makes the company a lot of money. So we're just going to keep rewarding it because we want that to be repeated. How do you create a culture in which the thing you are rewarding is Shane Battier?
1: So I think there there are two questions there. There's a culture question, and then there's also a structure question. Okay. Can we start with the culture question? Yeah. So on the culture side, I think it's fundamentally, the question is, who do you hire and who do you promote? people don't read your values from what you say. They, they figure out what's important to you through what you do. Mm. And if you bring in and elevate people who are individual superstars but undermining the people around them, you're sending a pretty clear signal that how we collaborate, how we work with others, you know, whether we make a team better or worse, is kind of irrelevant. So I think that you know, that means when you do interviews, you want to screen on you know, not just people's individual capabilities but what the effect of their performance is on their colleagues. You could ask the same question in promotions, and we we could talk through some examples of that if you want.
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear some examples of the questions you would ask.
1: So my uh, my new favorite example is uh, from a company called Menlo. It's a small company, uh, Menlo Innovations, in the Detroit area. As a native Michigander, I was very excited when I when I came across this example. <laughs> Michigander. Um, so, I've never heard that word before, but I like it. <laughs> you can also try Michiganian if that helps you, but. <laughs> Anyway, this company of Menlo innovations uh, they do a lot of collaborative work. They actually describe their their mission as a company as curing all the misery in the world that 's caused by software. Wow, which I think is a hilarious mission yeah, no kidding so they, uh, <laughs> a lot of the work they do is uh, they have pairs of people work together on debugging code and and putting programs together and so, in their initial hiring, the CEO Rich Sheridan had this this big problem that he kept bringing in people who were great at the individual tasks but were not working well in pairs. And he said, look, they're they're really smart, they're capable, but they're not very good at kindergarten skills. <laughs> <laughs> and so they actually revamped their job interview process so that now what they do is they run an audition. It's only three or four times a year. So instead of going in for an individual interview, you show up for this mass audition where there might be 50 to 100 candidates. And you're given a series of problems to work on in pairs. So you and another candidate have to collaborate. And you're told that one of the the conditions of your hiring is, do you actually make the other person look good enough that they could get a job? Oh, wow. And you will see very quickly who's willing and able to do that and who is not interested.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Because I can think of people that I work with today That it's like in every scenario they are in, when they are in the meeting, the entire meeting is better, right? And it's not because they are just some superstar. It's because they have this gift of elevating others. Yes. What is it about those people that gives them the ability to elevate others? Like what are you looking for to identify that quality in someone?
1: So it's related to narcissism and humility. Um, it's a dynamic I've studied most of my career. The fundamental question is, for, you know, in terms of mindset, are you more of a giver or a taker? Mm-hmm. So you know, takers are the people who are always asking, "What can you do for me?" On the other extreme, a giver is the opposite. It's all about what can I do for you? And of course, you know, people are much more complex than that. I find that actually most of us, in a new interaction professionally. Whenever we're at work, we'll, we'll tend to default into this third category and say, I'll be not a giver or a taker, but a matcher, which is I'll do something for you if you do something for me. Mm. And that way, you know, I'm not too selfish or too generous. But when you study the people who, who really enhance their teams, they tend to be givers. And that means when they walk into a room, they're not asking, you know, how do I impress someone, right? They're asking, how do I add value? They're trying to figure out what the team needs And then, you know, if it's a small thing, they don't think it's beneath them. You know, that might be, in some cases, sharing a bit of knowledge. It could be showing up a little early or staying late. It might, in other cases, be saying, you know what? I actually know somebody who's better qualified than I am to help you. And instead of trying to be the expert here, I'm going to make that introduction so that you can benefit directly from their knowledge. And when I've studied givers, the most interesting thing about them is they have the opposite effect, you know, on cultures that takers do. When takers succeed, somebody else has to fail. Right? Because it's all about win, lose, zero sum. That's right. When givers succeed, they actually make other people successful too. And so, you know, I don't think that generosity is always the most efficient path to success, but in many ways it's the most sustainable one because it, it ends up I think givers are
0: often the rising tide that lifts all boats. Mm, that's so good. Is giver versus taker a black and white dichotomy, or is it a spectrum, Adam? I mean, like everything
1: else in life, it's a spectrum. The way I think about it, Alex, is I think about your style as how you treat most of the people most of the time. Okay. And so, if you know, if you add up your days or work weeks, the question is, you know, in the majority of your your interactions, are you trying to help or are you trying to get ahead? or are you doing a lot of this, you know, favor trading in, in in a matching sense. And I think one of the the misconceptions that a lot of people have about givers is they're always nice people. And I find that how agreeable or disagreeable you are, you know, are you warm and friendly or more critical and and challenging has no bearing on your tendency to give and take. Because, you know, being agreeable is basically about creating social harmony, being a people pleaser. But that's kind of on the surface, right? How fun is it to interact with you? Are you a polite person? Whereas giving and taking are more of your motives deep down. What are your real values and intentions toward others? And so I think we make two big errors when we judge people. And I've seen this a lot in hiring. We get fooled a lot by the agreeable takers, also known as the fakers. <laughs> you know, they're, they're super nice to your face, but then they stab you in the back. Yeah, that's right. And they are so good at kissing up and kicking down. Because they know that the best way to get a job or get ahead is to impress powerful people. But then they figure out, you know, it's kind of a lot of work to pretend to care about everybody. And so they let their guard down with their peers and subordinates who get to see their true colors. Mm. And that means for me, it's often a red flag when somebody has a great reputation upward, but it's more mixed lateral and downward. It also means the more powerful you become as a leader – the worse your judgment of other people gets because you've got those takers who are more motivated to flatter you and impress you. And so that's, that's one kind of error that we make. There's another kind as well, but let me pause there.
0: Yeah, that's really good. I know Pat Lencioni describes the person that is – he uses the kind of trifold of humble, hungry, smart, and he says when someone is hungry and smart but not humble, he calls them the skillful politician. And he says that that person is the most dangerous person because they will skillfully climb the ladder and they will beat everyone below them in the process. What was the phrase you used there? They are great at kissing up but kicking down. Yeah, apparently there um, there's a common phrase for that in Dutch
1: uh, which I I obviously did not translate perfectly. But <laughs> I mean that
0: that is the mark of an agreeable taker. That's right. And that's what people need to be looking at for in the interview process is not just can this person kiss up because anyone can kiss up in an interview, but how does this person relate to their peers and people that are below them? I know I read something you wrote about a person's interactions with the receptionist at the interview before they go into the interview. And that's what that's looking for. I would assume is, okay, sure. You can kiss up, but, but what do you do to your peers? Yes.
1: Another fun example of that is Tony Shea told me once that when he was hiring people at Zappos, yeah. he would often decide that the first interview was going to be done by your driver who picked you up at the airport. But of course, you didn't know it. And so the question was, did you treat that person with respect? Or you know, did you dismiss them like they didn't count? And uh, if, you, if you didn't ace that part, you're just going right back to the airport. We don't need to bother
0: interviewing you. That's right. And we know where Zappos is, and it's because they hired not just for performance, but for character. Okay, I want to get to the second one because you said there were two. So the first one was noticing that difference, but then what's the second one?
1: So those are kind of the, those are the false positives, right? The people that we hire that we ended up regretting who often do a lot of cultural damage. There's also, though, a false negative problem. There are people we reject who we should have brought in, and those are the disagreeable givers, I think about disagreeable givers as as basically like Doctor House, uh, if you ever watched the the show. I, I or, haven't um, watched
0: it, but I've heard it's amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, just just really gruff and tough, and you know, almost like a like a a grizzly football coach. But they're hard on people because they care,
3: mm.
1: and they're dishing out tough love. And I think we um, we often misjudge them because on the surface they come across as you know maybe a little bit difficult and grumpy sometimes too skeptical and we misread that as not caring when in fact that's their way of caring right they believe in your potential they care about your success so much that they want to make you better and so i think you have to watch out for for that error too
0: On this giver and taker spectrum, if you have someone that is probably acting like a taker, but maybe is willing to be coached, what are the actions you would give leaders for coaching individuals towards the more giving side of the spectrum? I think you hit on the first step, which is willingness. Yeah. Uh, There's um, (laughs) a football coach who
1: went on to become uh, the most trusted coach to Steve Jobs and also to Larry Page and Sergey Brin at Apple. Uh, His name is Bill Campbell. The first question that Bill would ask people when they sat down wanting to work with him was, are you coachable? And he would just ask them right to their faces, Hmm. Uh, except it it wasn't a gentle question. It was more like,
0: are you coachable? (laughs) And he would would do that to Steve Jobs.
1: Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. And everyone else he worked with, he wouldn't work with you until he asked you that question. And I think it's such a clever question to ask because – you know that you can't say no to it. And otherwise, you know, the opportunity is gone. And so, yeah, of course I'm coachable is the answer. And now you've got to – you're accountable for that. You have to follow through and and live up to that commitment. And so it was a a great opportunity, I think, to both gauge how people reacted but then to put them in a a mindset where they were more likely to become coachable. And I, I think that's the beginning. I think if you've got someone who's who's willing to change their style, the next thing you have to do is help them see the consequences of their behavior. One of the most effective sort of conversations with reforming a taker I've ever seen was a few years ago, I met a woman named Kathy. She was working at a financial services company, and she got a promotion. She was told she was going to lead a new team with this guy that today I'll call Colin, because that's his name. <laughs> and Four different people came up to Kathy and said, Kathy, watch your back. Don't trust Colin. Basically saying, look, he's a huge taker. And Kathy sat down with him in their first one-on-one and said, hey, Colin, I understand we're going to lead this new team together, and I just wanted you to know, this is what I've heard about you. Hmm. And she shared all the reputational feedback.
0: Oh, my word.
1: Colin's response was priceless. He's like, I don't know who you've been talking to, but clearly all these people are jealous of me. Thank you, Colin, for confirming that you're a narcissistic taker. (laughs) That's right. But, you know, Kathy just said, Look, I don't know whether it's true or not. I don't know you, but I hope it's not true because I don't work well with people who operate that way. And if this is who you are, you are not going to like working with me. And I think what she did for Colin was she gave him a sense of, she basically held up a mirror. And said, look, this is your reputation. And made it clear that if he continued acting that way with her, he was not going to be successful. Mm. And I think that that's that's one of the most helpful steps you can take if you're trying to coach a taker in, in the more giving direction is to say, look, here are the behaviors that I've seen or heard about. Here's why they've been counterproductive. And here's what effectiveness would look like instead. And sure enough, Colin changed his stripes for the next year and a half that he was working with Kathy. He shared credit. He volunteered for unpopular assignments. He mentored junior people. And um, I think, you know, very often when we engage in a behavior, it makes sense in that moment. What we don't have access to is the full picture of all those moments collected together.
0: What do we look like to other people? Gosh, and and the, the great coach is the person that holds up the mirror, but they're responsible to hold up the mirror, but you are responsible for changing with regard to what you see. Man, Adam, that's so good. I'll tell you, I I could listen to you talk about this stuff forever. Yeah. This is just so rich with actionable takeaways. Before we get to the final question, I know you just released season three of Work Life, which I'm pumped about because I absolutely love your podcast, Adam. That's very kind of you, especially coming from somebody whose show I listen to. Oh, well, we're honored. Thank you for listening to us. I'd like to know what is something that you learned that you are most excited about sharing with your audience.
1: Oh, there's so many, it's very hard to pinpoint just one, but I think, I think if I had to if I had to zero in on one, let me let me think about this for a second. We have episodes coming out on how to procrastinate less, uh, how to fight burnout, how to be authentic without being
0: ineffective
1: or unprofessional. Oh, that's good. uh, Which I I think,
0: I I hope that's going to be useful. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's going to be necessary because I feel like the whole authenticity thing right now, it's like sometimes people go so far on the authenticity spectrum that they sacrifice all effectiveness.
1: I've seen that a lot and uh, actually would love uh, love to hear some of your examples because we found some. Really, you think you think it's authentic to be a jerk?
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> what what yeah. is that
0: all about? This is just my personality style, in quotes, right? It's like no, it's not. You're just being a jerk. Okay, so stop yeah, doing how that. About, how doofus. about you? Uh,
1: you find <laughs> some uh, some more authentically appropriate and uh, and productive values, and then try to bring those into your personality. That's right. So I think actually the the takeaway that stuck with me, which which was totally surprising to me probably came in the burnout episode. So one of the places I went to to try to figure out how to fight burnout was the Cleveland Clinic. They have doctors and nurses who deal with some of the most difficult situations that you can imagine in a job. Mm. And you know, burnout rates for the medical profession are among the highest of any any occupation on the planet. And when I looked at at the strategies that they used to fight burnout, one of the things they did was they trained their caregivers in empathy. And I just thought that was so weird because, you know, last time I checked, sometimes we burn out because we feel too much empathy for the people that we can't help, right? You have a patient diagnosed with a horrible disease. You know, it's not something you can treat and you feel awful. And yeah, that that becomes a burden. It's like a cloud over your whole life. Mm. And yet what I learned from a series of conversations and some observation that our producers did is the reason they trained empathy was they were burning out in part because they lacked control over interactions with patients. And they lacked a sense that they could do anything to help patients. And, you know, oftentimes there's some research suggesting that what's true for doctors, I bet this is true for managers too, that when a patient comes into their office, it often only takes uh, 15 or 20 seconds before they've interrupted them for the first time and there's this tug of war where you know the, the doctors are trying to to diagnose and solve but the patients are trying to be understood and heard and they're just talking past each other and you have yeah. these really difficult unpleasant ineffective interactions and when they trained caregivers in empathy the doctors and nurses came out and said okay I can ask a question I can listen a little bit longer and it turned out if you even just listened for 30 or 40 seconds you were in a much better position to help the patient resolve their problems and I thought that was such an interesting aha. It's um it's really changed the way that I think about giving advice now, which is, you know, I used to have entrepreneurs uh, and leaders and students in office hours ask me a question and then I'd want to jump to figure out what's the best solution for them. And now as, as I tried to do when you asked for uh, for some perspective earlier, I try to ask some follow-up questions about, well what what's really going on in that situation? And what's difficult about that, to try to put myself in a better position to be able to help, and that seems to benefit both sides. So that, that's been an aha for me.
0: Mm. That's awesome. I, I would recommend that anyone listens to this podcast would go check out Work Life. Adam and the team from TED do such a remarkable job of creating. I mean, the production quality is unbelievable and the content, I mean, you just heard some of it. It's absolutely outstanding. So thank you for that preview. My final question for you, we've been talking about this topic of humility and it's so interesting because a lot of the topics that we talk about on this podcast, you can draw a directly line to visible results. And this topic of humility is really interesting because a lot of times, the more effective you become at this, the less visible the actual results are going to be. And so this can be really hard work that you don't always experience the visible, tangible reward of. So my question to you would be, why is this work still so important for the leader? There's a researcher
1: named Brad Owens who's, who's answered that beautifully, he studies humility in top management teams and finds that humble leaders actually bring in better returns. Mm. You know, you can contrast that with, uh, with what we talked about earlier with narcissists, right? where they, they failed to learn. They ended up making bad bets. They often undermined their team's ability to learn. Uh, we see the exact opposite with humble leaders. And you know, I think it's, it's fair to say, though, that, that humility is about playing the long game. Right? You're not always going to get a return on your investment tomorrow in saying, you know what? There are things that I'm really terrible at that I need to get better at. There are ways that my team needs to acknowledge their weaknesses more frankly. That work is not always fun. <laughs> it's not always uh, going to produce the result you want tomorrow. But I think over the course of a year, over the course of a decade, and especially over the course of a career, humble leaders are the ones who end up
0: doing great things. Mm. Well, Adam, this entire message has been incredibly inspiring. Thank you so much for the way that you think intentionally and for your consistent effort to communicate a message that really makes a difference in the workplace. We really appreciate you, Adam.
1: No, thank you. Uh, You you asked a whole bunch of questions that I have not heard before. Uh, You got me thinking about things I haven't had a chance to think about before I especially love this this challenge which i'm I'm going to take up now to go and observe humble leaders and ask what are what are those moves that they make that establish their willingness to keep learning and improving. I feel like that's a that's a little bit of detective work that we could all do, and uh, I'm adding it to my observation list
0: I'm such a fan of Adam's work, and I'll tell you I'm just as big of a fan of him as a person. He works so hard to live in alignment with the message that he talks about every single day. And one just practical example of that is after we recorded that conversation, the first thing that he asked me was, hey, Alex, can you make sure you send me just one specific critique about this interview? Well, there you go. He's doing what he said he would do. He's living with humility, always trying to grow, always trying to improve, never thinking that he's quite figured it out. I think that should be an inspiration for all of us. We are big fans of Adam Grant's books here. Give and Take is one of our favorites at Entree Leadership. That's why it's part of our Entree Leadership reading guide. This is a list of 100 books that we think every business owner and leader should be reading. These are books that have been transformational for our leadership team here and for our business. And so if you want to get this free resource, this PDF that lays out all 100 books, text the phrase 100 books to 33444. Again, that's 100 books, all one word, no spaces to 33444, or just click the link that's in the show notes. Hey, real quick, before you turn off the podcast, one of the things that we are really striving to do is make sure that we create an episode every single Monday that meets you where you are at as a business leader and as a business owner. And the way that we know we're doing that is your feedback. Seriously, we appreciate all of you that fill the survey out after every episode because that lets us know how we're doing and how we can improve and how we can do better. I read them every single week. So if you haven't taken that survey in a while or you want to take it for this episode, Go ahead and click the link that's in the show notes. It helps us out a lot. Also, you're going to be entered to win a $25 Amazon gift card. Thanks so much for your feedback. We appreciate it so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Entree Leadership Podcast. If you did, please give it a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Also, be sure to follow us on social media at Entree Leadership. This episode was produced by Tim Hull and it was edited and mixed by Will Rudder. I'm Alex Judd and on behalf of the entire Entree Leadership team. Thanks for listening. We'll talk with you again very soon.
3: If you enjoy this podcast, you should check out other great podcasts from the Ramsey Network, like Borrowed Future. Not-so-fun fact, America has a $1.6 trillion student loan crisis, and it's out of control. I'm George Camel, host of the Borrowed Future podcast, where we uncover the underbelly of the student loan industry and show you what you can do about it. It'll inspire you to see that it is possible to avoid student loans and graduate college debt-free. Listen to Borrowed Future wherever you listen to podcasts.